My brother Jason died um, just over four years ago at the age of 36, and, and one of the things that I will miss most about him is our family Thanksgivings at his house. He and his wife Heather just always put on a really big Thanksgiving and they even had my late grandparents' dining table, their big dining table, so, so sitting around it there, eating dinner with everyone, it just really felt like home. Jason was in recovery, uh, he'd been sober for years, but he was really active in AA and NA, and he made friends really easily. And, and I think he took a kind of a special joy um, because he had had seasons of being friendless you know, during his addiction and recovery. I think he took a special joy in befriending people who, who other people might tend to avoid. And so one of the fun things about Thanksgiving at Jason's house was that there was always one or two colorful characters that we did not expect uh, who would be there with us. And, and Heather, his wife, called it taken in strays. Jason was always taken in strays because he just couldn't bear the thought of someone eating Thanksgiving dinner alone. So he invited them to his table. The first year that I took Rob, who was then just my boyfriend, to Thanksgiving with me up to Pittsburgh, uh, there, was, there was a fellow there. He was an eccentric fellow. We'll call him Dave, uh, my brother's friend Dave. And uh, after dinner, we exchanged early Christmas presents because we weren't going to fly back up for December. And Jason very thoughtfully gave small gifts to Dave and to Rob. And so they, they're opening them. And Dave, I think, no, Rob got a headlamp. Dave got a, like a Swiss army knife or something. And so they open their gifts and then Dave sees Rob's present and goes, oh man, I'd way rather have that. <laughs> Rob's like, okay, we can trade. And so he hands him the headlamp and he takes the knife. And, and then Dave looks at the back of the headlamp and sees the price on it. And he goes, oh man, this isn't expensive as that one. I want that one back. <laughs> Rob's like, okay. <laughs> We'll trade, and I'm just watching this from the couch, cringing and thinking, there's no way he's going to marry into my family after this. There's just no way. But he did. And then I met his family, and I realized he was probably afraid of the same thing. <laughs> but I miss those dinners. I miss that part of my brother who didn't want to leave anybody out. I try to mimic it sometimes, but I think he was better. There's a word for kindness in Hebrew that I think goes beyond what our English translations can convey, the word is hesed, loving kindness. Isaiah 54.10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love has said, for you will not be shaken. Lamentations 3.31, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he bring grief, he will show compassion. So great is his hesed, his unfailing love. Hesed means loving like God loves. It is the unwarranted favor, the unwarranted kindness offered by a person in a position of power to someone who does not deserve it and cannot repay it. Hesed is not a feeling that we feel about people. It's, it's an action that we take, the act of being loving and kind and generous, even when we don't feel like it, even to people who don't deserve it and, 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 and that we don't want to be kind to, even to people who would take advantage of our kindness. Luke 3 6.32 says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I think it was said that compelled my brother to invite people to his table who could never pay him back, who could never help him kind of, you know, give him connections of upward mobility. They couldn't even offer him a Thanksgiving dinner in return, but, but he just had to have them there to show them kindness like God had shown to him. So as John mentioned, we're wrapping up today our series, Undone, where we look at the vices that we so often embrace and the virtues that we so often leave undone. Last week, we looked at the vice of envy, and today we're going to be looking at the virtue of kindness. 
And for our examination of kindness, I've chosen another story from the life of David, our complex king. The books of First and Second Samuel, they tell a story of how uh, the, the nation of Israel had become, uh, had gone from being this these tribes ruled by judges to a, a single unified nation under a king ruling from Jerusalem. Saul was the first anointed king. But then he got proud and he stopped paying attention to what God asked of him. He stopped obeying God's commands and so God anoints David to replace him. And Saul, as his popularity begins to wane, is driven mad with jealousy over David's success. And so he chases him into the wilderness. He tries to kill him. Uh, he, he, he continues to pursue him for, for several chapters. Uh, but, but God is with David and he protects him. Saul is eventually killed as is his son, Jonathan, in a battle with the Philistines and David is made king. And he conquers Jerusalem and he moves the Ark of the Covenant there. Uh, and, 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 and everything is kind of going well. He conquers the Philistines, Israel's arch nemesis. He settles into new, his new palace and things are going just about as good as they can be. And then David says, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, has said, for Jonathan's sake? David, by the way, he loved Jonathan, even though Jonathan was Saul's son, because Jonathan was a true friend to David. He was loyal to him and fought for him, even at great personal risk. Verse 2. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear, David, to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. By the way, Jonathan's son became lame uh, when he was about five years old because when his nurse heard the news that, that both Saul and Jonathan had been killed, she tried to flee with the boy and she dropped him. It's a really sad story. Verse four, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, who am I that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your, master's grand you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. This is God's word. Mephibosheth has no reason to expect David's kindness. And David, apart from his love for Jonathan, really has no reason to give it. In fact, in the ancient Near East, when there was a regime change that wasn't just the hereditary passing of the crown, it would have been common for the new king to just kill the entire household of the old one so they didn't try to take back the throne. So they couldn't rise up against him. The relatives of the previous king would have scattered. That's, that's why David needs to ask for some help from Ziba to find Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. If he was smart, he would have been in hiding. It was remarkable that David would have summoned him for any reason other than to wipe out his line. And Mephibosheth knows. He, he prostrates himself before the king. He falls at his feet and says, uh, who am I? I'm your servant. But David lifts him up and he says, no. 
No, you're going to live like one of my sons, and you will eat at my table forever. Also, when I picked this passage, I did not consider how many times I would have to say the name Mephibosheth. So I will, on occasion, refer to him as Jonathan's son. They're the same person. David lifts up his head and he says, don't be afraid, you're going to live like one of my sons, you will eat at my table forever, because kindness offers what we do not deserve and what we could never earn. By the way, I, I think that it can be hard to receive kindness that we know that we cannot repay. I keep a, an invisible scorecard in my marriage. Uh, I don't mean to, but I do. And because I'm codependent, the scorecard is actually a record of all the wonderful things that my husband does so that I know, so that I can keep track of what I owe him. <laughs> so for example, you know, if he watches our daughter Ember so I can go out with a friend, I feel like I cannot rest until I've paid back the kindness. So, so the next day, I'm basically pushing him out of the house and saying like, go, you know, go shooting with the boys, go to REI, look at gear, go be free. And finally he'll say, why are you trying to chase me out of our house? <laughs> what am I gonna say? I mean, without sounding like uh, Black Widow from the Avengers, I got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. <laughs> I think it's hard to be indebted to anyone. You know, we're always living in fear that they're gonna call in our loan, but that's, that's what makes kindness said so incredible because it's, it's better than credit. Kindness, kindness by definition is not something that we expect to be paid back. At best, it can be paid forward. And we display the character of God to the rest of the world when we offer kindness to others that cannot be paid back. And that's more than just being nice. My friend Gary was prepping a sermon on kindness also before we had to go digital, and he sent me his notes, and there was a part in it that I just loved where he talked about how, how we often, we, we use the words kind and nice interchangeably, but they are so, they're so different. In fact, nice is, is actually derived from the Latin word for ignorant, and it's not used a single time in the New Testament. Nice is not a biblical idea. Jesus wasn't nice. He flipped tables. You know, what's, what, what's nice? It's being polite, it's trying not to offend, it's complimenting my shoes, and that's fine, but, but that's not going to turn any heads. Do you, do you know why? Do you know why God wants you to be kind? He wants you to be kind because real kindness has said genuine generosity, selflessness is so very rare, and that's important. That's important because God wants to make a spectacle of us. That's part of how we build his kingdom. You and I have a mission. We are supposed to live lives so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the rest of the world looks at us and they want to know the God we live that way for. That's what we're supposed to do. That's always been his plan. It was the mission of Israel that was, that was made possible by Christ, passed on to us, his church. Be so different in the way that you live your lives that other people look into this community and say, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to serve that God. Kindness. It's part of our mission. Turn people's heads toward Jesus. And sadly, Kindness can be a real head-turner these days. Not a lot of people say, here, take this, and I don't want anything back. Not a lot of people say, here, I'm going to give this to you, and, and I will never call in your loan. Guys, people are watching us. They're watching us, and they are deciding something about God. Let us help them decide something true and nice. Just isn't going to cut it. What David did for Mephibosheth wasn't nice, it was remarkable. Hesed is a spectacle. 
It attracts attention simply by being so very unexpected, and in doing so, it helps us to complete the mission for which we were made. Kindness is rare because it, because it costs us something and we know going in that we're not gonna recover it. And kindness is risky because people can take advantage of your kindness. Rob and I recently got a firsthand look at how very different our parenting can be. Um, Ember came home from school one day and she shared with me that she had finished a, a worksheet for another student. We'll call that student Trixie. And, uh, and she said that Trixie had offered her $200 to do her worksheet, and, and Ember, of course, said yes. It's a lot of money. And in fact, I think the only reason that she was telling me about this was because she was so excited about her soon-to-be windfall that she, wanted to, she just wanted to share the good news. And you know, I, I wasn't sure exactly how to deal with it. I was at a bit of a loss, and so I said, babe, it's, it's never okay to finish other people's work, and made a mental note, talked to Rob about it later. But then the next day, we get a call from her teacher. Ember had been sent to the principal's office because she walked into the boys' bathroom and she had done it on purpose. And, and even with a kindergartner, they have to take that very seriously, of course. So she comes home, and Rob and I go into her room to talk to her together. But, but as soon as we bring it up, she says, but mommy, Trixie offered me $200 to go into the boys' bathroom, and I really needed the money. <laughs> And this is where our parenting diverges. Rob is just finishing this really wonderful, kind, but firm, you know, dad of the year, biblical lesson about how we should never break the rules, even when people offer us money. And he looks at me and he says, do you have anything to add, Fave? And I nod my head and I look at her and I'm like, Ember, did you even get paid? And Rob's like, what are you doing? I mean, he's like talking about right and wrong. And I'm like, cash up front, baby. You know, because, because... <laughs> I was furious. I was furious that this little girl was manipulating my daughter. I was mad about it because, and it, you know, that doesn't excuse Ember's choices, and, and I wanted to address her choices too, but I also wanted to address the manipulation because I didn't want her to be taken advantage of. And I know I'm a bad parent, and I know that's I'm, that my reaction was a response to my own baggage. I know that, but, but, but I want her to be smart. I want her to be smart. I wanted her to protect herself because the world isn't always kind. The world can be really very ugly. The world can take advantage of your kindness. That's what makes Hesed such a spectacle because it is so very rare because it leaves us open and we know when we're kind that it leaves us open to be exploited. So a lot of people don't even take the risk. The story of Jonathan's son takes a turn for the tragic when Absalom, so this is, Absalom is, is David's oldest son, tries to steal the throne from him. You can actually hear more about this if you go back and listen to the Sermon on Lust. But his son stages a coup, and David and his troops are, are driven out of the city, and when they get there, they're hungry and they're thirsty, and lo and behold, here is Ziba. Ziba, you'll remember, was the steward of Saul's property. Uh, when David asks, is there anyone that I can show kindness to? And he, and he brings Mephibosheth to him, and, and David gives uh, Mephibosheth all of that land that Ziba was the steward of. And so Ziba, he meets the king. Oh, by the way, if, if you're having a hard time following this plot line because of the names, uh, <laughs> the base camp team is actually, uh, if you click on the resources below, they've made a reenaction of it, and I think they've done it with just Mr. Potato Heads. So I think that'll be probably a lot more clear than what I've said so far. So, so Ziba meets the king and the troops outside of the city with food and water, and he gives them provisions while they're on the run from this coup. And then, 
Ziba tells David that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan to whom he shows this extravagant kindness, he's not here. And he's not here because while you're gone, Mephibosheth plans to take back the throne in the name of his father, Saul, who you replaced. And it works. David is heartbroken by this betrayal. And right then and there, he gives Ziba, Ziba, the steward, he gives Ziba ownership of all of Saul's assets that he had graciously given to Jonathan's son. Now, in truth, Mephibosheth had asked Ziba to help him ride out with the king. He said, please saddle my donkey so I can ride out with the king, but he's disabled. Remember, he needs help. He's physically limited, and Ziba betrays him. He leaves Mephibosheth waiting, and then he races out there ahead of him to meet the king and the troops with these provisions and to spread this lie, and it works. He gets himself made owner instead of servant. He has a real steward of Gondor thing going on. Ziba, Ziba was envious. He'd had control of Saul's stuff, though it wasn't really his. He'd had control of it until it was all given to Jonathan's son. And so he tries to get it back. He, he, he exploits his disability and he makes his play because envy, like we learned last week, envy operates out of scarcity, out of this poisonous belief that there is only so much good in the world. And so if you get any, that means I must get less. It operates from scarcity. And scarcity makes people do crazy things. Like buy every roll of toilet paper in the city of Orlando. The world seems to be, you know, it's, we're coming unglued. And it's all we hear about, and it's not good for us. You, you, know, you know what we don't need to hear about? You know what I don't need to hear about? How every place I've ever shopped is dealing with coronavirus. I don't care that out of an abundance of caution, David's bridal is now sanitizing their shelves and the employees are washing their hands. Also, shouldn't we have been doing that out of like a normal amount of caution? Like, doesn't have to be a special occasion, just wash your hands. My husband, he enjoys skeet shooting, and so he went out to buy some skeet ammo uh, have something to do, I guess, when everything's shut down. But there wasn't any ammo there. The ammo was gone. Even the skeet shooting ammo in case, I don't know, some birds come for your toilet paper, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. All the post-apocalyptic teen drama I watch should have prepared me better for this moment. It's surreal. You know, theme parks are a wasteland, theaters are closed. I saw a woman walking through the drive-thru with the Dunkin' Donuts the other day <laughs> because the doors were locked and she'd walked there, so she just got in line with the cars. <laughs> like a boss, good for her. Normal life has become some caricature of what it once was, and, and people need hope. And I don't mean, I don't mean that they just need hope that everything is gonna be okay, because maybe it will, but guys, maybe it won't at least not for everyone. You know, the things that make people most susceptible are old age and underlying health conditions, but there's another one, socioeconomics. People who can't rely on a regular salary, people without paid sick time, hourly people, gig workers, folks who work at Disney and Universal in our backyard. You know, day laborers, Uber drivers, people who still need to bring home food week to week because they don't have an extra $500 to just drop on extra groceries for a month. They need to take more risks. They have to go out and work or their families don't eat. And so they bear the risk of going out and stocking the shelves that we pick clean 
They bear the risk of collecting our Amazon packages and bringing them to our doors. They bear the risk for us. And because some of them don't even have health insurance, I mean, they're less likely to recover even if they do become infected. They don't need some false hope that there will be enough beds and that we won't see a recession because both of those things might happen. They don't need that false hope. They need hope. They need hope that when those things do happen, if they happen, they won't have to face them alone. They need hope that they won't be alone. Because the God of the universe is waiting with open arms to meet them at the doorstep of eternity. And also, because his image bearers on earth, you and me, will do everything that we can to delay that meeting. Until they are old and gray and ready to go home. We will pour out our hesed to make the worst that could happen more bearable on those who will feel it most. If there was ever a time for kindness, it's now. If there was ever a time for generosity to those who cannot repay it, it's today. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That command is not suspended because of the pandemic. It is made more urgent than ever. Maybe you can check on some elderly neighbors to see if they need groceries. You know, maybe you can support a local food bank. They will be feeding Orlando's homeless youth who can't eat while the schools are shut down because that's where they got their meals. Maybe you can give blood. Maybe you can call your local shelter, figure out what they need. Maybe you can babysit for a nurse. Maybe you can make a phone call to someone who's in a nursing home or in jail. They can't receive visitors. There's a lot of things that we can do. You know, students, students, you have grown up in online communities. You have prepared your whole life for this moment. You know, use, use those communities for good. Use them to encourage one another. We may have to distance socially, but not emotionally, not spiritually, encourage one another and meet one another's needs so we don't have to face this alone, especially those of us who are young and healthy. We need to share the burden of this risk. And you know what? We might die, but guys, we were going to anyway. And I can only hope that when I do, it's delivering groceries to my elderly neighbors and not cowering in my room, hugging 300 rolls of black market toilet paper. I mean, now, if you're high risk, of course, I, I don't want you to go out. You shouldn't be out there volunteering, but there are other ways to help find one because here's the reality. The answer to scarcity is not hoarding all the good that we can. The answer to scarcity is to create more good. And every single one of us can do that much. And listen, don't get me wrong. I, I am scared. If you know me at all, you know, worry is my most consistent sin. I am skilled at it. If, my subconscious is like a game of where's Waldo if Waldo were death and dying. This is my life. <laughs> I'm scared. You know, I'm scared. I'm immune compromised. My dad has Parkinson's. My mom has a pacemaker. I'm scared because I know what this could cost us. We're all scared. And hey, listen, it's okay to be scared. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is, is being afraid and then doing what we have to do anyway. It's okay to be scared. Fear is an emotion. You can't always help it, but worry. Worry is an action, and it's not going to help us. And I know it's hard not to worry. I worry all the time. I'm not, I'm not shaming anyone, but bottom line, and I'm, I'm just being real practical here, worry doesn't get anything helpful done. I have two irrational fears in life. I have one irrational fear in life, which is going downhill fast. My second fear is porcelain dolls, but I think that one's actually perfectly rational. 
<laughs> when I was growing up, um, my mom and her boyfriend tried to help me overcome my fear of roller coasters by talking me into riding one. And so we went to Kennywood Park in Pennsylvania, and, and they put me on this uh, water coaster called the Log Jammer. And it, it's pretty gentle as far as you know, coasters go. It doesn't even have seat belts. And they thought, you know, if, if, if she experiences like, uh, the fear in mitigated form, then maybe she'll see you know, it's really not that bad. Makes sense. So uh, there's, it's a, a log seats six people and there's only three of us, and so we have to ride with three people that we don't know, and they seat me second in the log, right? Because, you know, further back you are, the worse the fall, but I don't want to see what's coming, so not front. Um, so, so I'm second in the log, uh, right behind Rich, my mom's boyfriend, and then there's me, and there's my mom, and then there's the three people that we don't know, and we're on our way toward the first hill, and we start to go up, and I begin to hear that click, click, click. You know what I'm talking about? That sickening click, 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 that indicates my impending doom because our cart has been locked into a chain which is now pulling us to the top of the hill and that clicking, that god-awful click, click, clicking causes me to start to worry about the fall. And as I start to anticipate the fall, I begin also to wet myself. And <laughs> it's okay to laugh, I was just a kid. I mean like only 15 or 16 at most. Um, <laughs> And so my mom, my mom realizes what's happening, and so she like jumps up out of her seat, and then the people behind us, who we still don't know, they see the yellow tide rolling, and so then they jump up, and then we get to the top of the hill, and our weight shifts. So everyone has to jump up again because the pee is coming backwards, you know? What, what, what did I accomplish? I accomplished, I accomplished nothing with all of my worry, aside from soiling three very angry Pitt University students, um, I accomplished nothing except experiencing my pain twice. I experienced my pain first while I was worried about the fall and then again when the fall actually came. Guys, worry doesn't get anything helpful done. We have an opportunity here to show the world what Jesus is like with our hesed with our courage, with our love. I mean, how embarrassing would it be if we spent the next few months just locked in our bedrooms, clutching our toilet paper, telling the rest of the world to fend for yourselves, and then when things go back to normal, which they always do, the world is left thinking that Christians fear death more than most. I don't want to misrepresent my savior that way. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we, we still absolutely have to be smart. I know there are people out there who aren't scared at all. You know, like John, our lead pastor, for example. I'm pretty sure I saw him dining in at Wawa today. Gross, okay? <laughs> but he's not scared. He's not scared. And honestly, that's great. That's great. I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you're not scared. God tells us not to be afraid. I wish I were more like you. But please keep in mind, you are not the only one that you need to protect. You're, you're probably going to be fine. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you will be, but you can be kind by protecting people who might not end up being as fine as you will. I love that you're not scared. Maybe the invitation for you instead is just don't be courageous at the expense of being kind. We all need to exercise wisdom for the sake of others. Offer kindness to others that cannot be repaid. Make it a spectacle so that other people will look at you and they'll want to know the God that you live that way for. 
David returns from the wilderness, having put down the coup, and Mephibosheth comes out to meet him, and David asks, why, why didn't you come with me? And he says, I wanted to, I wanted to, but Ziba betrayed me, and then David is torn. He's torn because Ziba brought him provisions when he was on the run, and he appreciated it, but Mephibosheth has clearly been living like a man in mourning. He hasn't shaved or washed or changed his clothes since the day David left. And David doesn't know what to do. And so finally he says, fine, you know what? Just you and Ziba, you divide the land between yourselves. But Mephibosheth says, listen, my grandparents' descendants deserve nothing but death from you, but you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. Let Ziba take everything now that my lord the king has returned home safely. I think Jonathan's son is on to something. All his possessions are worth nothing if he has to enjoy them alone. What are we afraid of? I think we're afraid of the unknown. I think we're afraid of mortality, and so we grasp at what petty little things we can control, like hand sanitizer and toilet paper, because, because we are afraid that the provision's going to run out that the help is going to run out, and, and, and ultimately that the clock is going to run out, and we will be standing before God Almighty with our sins in our hands, with no defense for what we've done. But guys, remember, we don't have to stand alone. There's always hope. Even when the worst happens as it must someday for all of us, there's always hope because choosing Jesus Trusting him for, for the forgiveness of your sins and the lordship of your life means that you don't face that day alone because you've arrived with the king. And he will lift up your head and he'll say, don't be afraid. You're going to live like one of my sons and you will eat at my table forever. We're going to pray in a second. I, I, I wrote this prayer while I was prepping this message because I wanted to have something to pray um, for myself that uh, was more concrete than just my feelings. Um, and so this prayer is, is modeled after the Lord's Prayer, and, and each statement or petition in the prayer ha is accompanied by a scripture reference. So if you want to look them up later as part of your own um, devotions or your own prayer, I think we have that link also that you can click on to, to see the prayer and the references. But let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, you are the great physician. Nothing can stand against you. No illness of the body and no illness of the heart. You are worthy of all our praise. So let your kingdom come to us and through us, Lord. Let us be your hands and feet. Let us encourage the frightened. Let us care for the vulnerable. Let us not make our liberty a snare for the weak. Let your will be done. Let us not waste our time in worry, but be diligent in service and prayer not growing weary of doing good. On earth as it is in heaven, let our love and our service give a glimpse to the frightened of the trustworthy kindness of God. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, protect the weak, the elderly, the immune compromised, the prisoner, the premature babies, the pregnant moms, and the poor. Give endurance to doctors, give breakthroughs to science, and protection to all those who cannot stay home. Give wisdom to leaders who guide our way through this. Give courage to uneasy souls. Forgive us our debts. Lord, we have been prideful. Forgive us our hubris and our folly. Let us remember that we are but dust. 
and rely on your life-saving grace. As we forgive our debtors, Lord, let us bear with the faults of our brothers and forgive because you forgave us. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, let us not grasp at the expense of others and not read more news than your life-giving word and help us stay focused on you. Deliver us from evil. Lord, let this pandemic not cripple our kindness and render us useless to serve. Let it not steal our hope. Let it not kill our joy or destroy how we represent you. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.